Okay, let's make a start. Has everybody got a pen out? Yes. Um, delighted to welcome Craig French from the University of Nottingham, uh, who's going to talk to us about naivism and diaconeity. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, thanks for having me here. So I'm going to talk about a theory of experience uh, known as naive realism. I'll be very brief on the details of the theory, very compressed, but if anyone would like further information about how I'm understanding the theory, do say in the Q&A. Uh, so this theory is a theory of um, the experiences we have in cases of genuine perceptions, um, specifically the experiences of mind-independent objects, of ordinary mind-independent objects. Um, and the theory involves this component, which I'm calling the character component, which says that um, the mind-independent objects of such experiences are constitutive of character, of the conscious character of experience, of what it's like for a subject to undergo experience. Um, <clears throat> so more on that soon. Um, because the, the real question I'm going to be grappling with is how are we to understand that component of naive realism? How are we to spell that out? <clears throat> um, to get to the, the main uh, issue of diaphaneity, I want first to do a brief comparison between naive realism and the sense datum theory. Um, the sense datum theory also involves a character component. Uh, so sense datum theorists also say that the objects of experience are constitutive of character, of conscious character, but sense-datum theorists think of the objects of experience not as ordinary mind-independent objects, but as sense-data, and then there's debate about what sense-data are. Um, just not being ordinary mind-independent objects doesn't tell you very much. Maybe they're mind-dependent objects, maybe they're peculiar mind-independent objects, but that's what the sense-datum theory says. It says those objects, sense-data, are constitutive of character. And one way in which sense datum theorists are interpreted is as spelling out that character component in terms of a claim called diaphaneity. <clears throat> um, and that diaphaneity says um, that the, uh, the character of an experience is entirely constituted by its objects. So facts about the character of an experience are. Um, hold entirely in virtue of facts about the nature and character of the objects of experience. And that's the claim I've got on the handout as strong diaphaneity, um, which I spell out in terms of a strong difference claim and a strong sameness claim. So the idea is that the conscious character of an experience is entirely constituted by its objects such that if any experiences differ in character, then they... Um, differ in their objects, and that difference is constitutive of the difference in character. And if any experiences are the same in character, then they're the same in objects, and that sameness is entirely constituted by the objects. And it's the same in which objects, or different in which objects, but also sameness, qualitative sameness, and qualitative difference is relevant here. <clears throat> so that strong diaphaneity claim is to be distinguished from a weaker claim, which says... The conscious character of experience necessarily co-varies with facts about the objects of experience. So that's to say, we put aside stuff about constitution and the nature of character, but, and we hold just that um, here, weak diaphaneity. The conscious character of an experience is such that 
necessarily, if any two experiences have different conscious characters and they have different objects or differences in their objects, and the sameness claim, necessarily, if any two experiences have the same conscious character, then they have the same objects or sameness in their objects. So we've got in place so far <coughs> strong diaphaneity, which says conscious character is entirely constituted by facts about objects of experience, and a weaker version that says conscious character involves facts about experience and variation, similarities and differences in conscious character entail similarities and differences in the objects of experience. Okay. Um, so the question is, given that naive realists, like sense-datum theorists, think that the character of experience is constituted by its objects, should we understand that? Do we understand that in terms of diaphaneity? either or both a strong and weak diaphaneity? That's the question I'm going to be focusing on. Okay. So just a little bit more background. Um, many commentators on naive realism do understand it as... Um, do understand the character component of the view as... Uh, in terms of strong diaphaneity. Um, and in the written version of the of this talk, there's, I've given some quotations. I, I won't go through those, but many commentators do construe it in that way. Uh, but then, on the other hand, when you look at what naive realists themselves say, that they're a lot more cautious, it's very difficult to find a commitment to strong diaphaneity, and in some cases, even weak diaphaneity in their actual words. Um, so on the face of it, there's this sort of odd state of affairs, which is, if you look carefully at what naive realists say, they don't really seem to go for diaphaneity. Look at what the commentators say, and they do construe it as a position which endorses diaphaneity. Um, so what are we to make of naive realism, then? Are the commentators right that it should in involve diaphaneity, or should we be more cautious and develop the position differently? <clears throat> so now I just want to do two things in the talk. First of all, I want to outline a version of naive realism in a bit more detail, which is a recent version, Bill Brewer's version, which looks like it is actually a strongly diaphanous um, version. That is, it involves strong diaphaneity, this claim, and hence weak diaphaneity, because that's entailed by it. Um, so it looks like it, it really is a live option to consider that naive realism, or a version of it, involves diaphaneity, strong diaphaneity, and then what I'm going to do is argue against that and say um, we should reject strong and indeed weak diaphaneity. And so naive realism should be developed without any of this diaphaneity stuff. So there's a negative aim there. And as the discussion goes on, it might become clear potentially what it would be for a naive realist to reject diaphaneity and what they could say uh, about experiences character insofar as it's non-diaphanous. Okay. <clears throat> so um, I'm on to the second part of the handout now then. Three place naive realism diaphaneity. So according to three place naive realism we're, understand, we're to understand perceptual experiences as relations between subjects and 
mind-independent objects. Um, but not a simple two-place relation between a subject and an object, but as involving a third place or a third relatum in which you have <coughs> factors such as the perceptual conditions, perhaps things to do with the perspective of the perceiver. Um, so John Campbell has something like this view, and he'll say, perception is always a subject perceiving an object from a standpoint. And then he'll spell out standpoint with reference to things like the point of view, um, spatio-temporal point of view. Um, and Bill Brewer will come in, he'll spell it out further in terms of if it's vision, what the lighting conditions are. So lots of different factors go into this third relatum. So that's why it's called three-place naive realism. <clears throat> now, diaphanous versions of naive realism seem to explain or say that the, the nature of conscious character comes entirely from the objects of experience. And now we've just encountered this three-place naive realism where we've got the subject and the object, but something else too. So it seems like it's designed to avoid this diaphaneity stuff. Because we've factored in something else that could potentially explain or account for conscious character that's not doesn't seem to be about the object. It's this standpoint or third relatum. So on the face of it, <clears throat> this recent version of naive realism does seem to be a version that just doesn't have anything to do with this strong diaphaneity, perhaps also not the weak diaphaneity either. <clears throat> so if you have a visual experience of an object and there's a subject in the object, but there's also the lighting conditions that are somehow playing a role, then perhaps it's going to look unlikely that the character of this experience is wholly constituted by the object, that it's all explained in terms of facts about the object, because you've also got the lighting conditions that somehow play a role, perhaps. So on the face of it, this three-place naive realist framework, or version of naive realism, looks to be um, dissociated from uh, diaphaneity. Um, I now want to suggest that if you look closely at one version of this view, that's not quite how it seems. It turns out to be consistent with strong diaphaneity after all. And that's Brewer's view, so I'm going to go over that in some detail. Um, I'm not so interested in whether what I'm about to say actually is a, a correct interpretation of Brewer's view. It, it really matters that it's, um, it, we get an outline of a plausible enough view, right? But I'm going to be using some of Brewer's, Brewer's stuff in order to get it on the table. Right. So we can, we can begin to introduce Brewer's view, Brewer's view with these uh, cases on the handout that I'm calling challenge cases because on the face of it, they seem to challenge um, strong and weak diaphaneity. They seem to challenge the strong difference claim and the weak difference claim. Um, <clears throat> so these cases come from Brewer. So the first case is you view a coin head-on, and then you view the same coin from a wide angle. Um, second case is you view the head side of a coin and then the tail side of the same coin. Uh, third case, you view a newly minted coin and then the same coin tarnished years later. Fourth case, you view a coin in bright light and the same coin in dim light. Finally, you see a coin and then you feel the same coin. So... As Brewer presents these cases, 
each pair involves the same physical object, the same coin, yet each pair involves different experiences, experiences with different characters. <clears throat> so you might think, well, um, these difference claims are, are in diaphanity are going to fail because we would have two experiences that have different conscious characters, um, but that's not going to be constituted entirely by them having different objects on the face of it. So that's, that's the initial challenge from these cases. We'll come back to that shortly. Um, and so here's how Brewer then deals with these cases in his naive realist framework. This is the first quotation on the handout. <clears throat> he says, Perceptual experience is a matter of a person's conscious acquaintance with various mind-independent physical objects, and his emphasis here, I think, yeah, from a given spatio-temporal point of view, in a particular sense modality, and in certain specific circumstances of perception, such as lighting conditions in the case of vision, these factors, he says, effectively conjoin to constitute a third relatum of the relation of conscious acquaintance that holds between perceivers and the mind-independent physical direct objects of their perceptual experience. Thus, the experiential variations noted above, namely in those challenge cases and the experiences in each of those cases, and others along similar lines, may all perfectly adequately be accounted for by variations within this third relatum. For example, head-on versus wide-angle experiences and then those of the head side versus the tail side involve different spatial points of view. So the aspect of the third relatum to do with point of view varies across those cases, and that can account for, he says, the experiential variation. And he says similar things for the other cases too. <clears throat> so here we seem to have explanatory weight being assigned to the third relatum when it comes to the character of experience and variations in the character of experience, as opposed to the object of experience. And that seems to take us away from diaphaneity. Now, Brewer doesn't frame his discussion in these terms of diaphaneity and so on, so a little bit of interpretation is necessary. So if we're to follow what I just suggested and interpret it in that way as a sort of non-diaphanous version of naive realism, one way to do it would be as follows, would be to say that perhaps... Brewer is taking these third relatum factors to have what we might call a character-shaping role, where that means determinations of such factors, so a determination of, well, how are the lighting conditions, the lighting conditions are thus, um, are themselves constitutive of character such that there can be aspects of character not constituted entirely by any object. So that would be one way to take it, and thus Brewer's view would end up being a non-diaphanous version of naive realism. It would be a version that would deny the diaphanity claims. Okay. But I want to say that's really not... It's not obvious that that's how Brewer intends to be understood. Um, because if we look to how he develops his thoughts about the third relatum factors, then they don't seem... He doesn't seem to assign them this character-shaping role he seems to assign them a different role altogether, um, which I'm calling a determining and selecting role. And this, if, if third relatum factors play this role, I'm going to suggest that's perfectly consistent with the diaphaneity claims. So what I need to do is explain what I mean by that and then to say how, 
Having the third relatum factors in this determining and selecting role would help us with these challenge cases. And then to say why that doesn't uh, get us away from diaphaneity. Okay. So to get that onto the table, I'm going to bring in some other parts of Brewer's view. <clears throat> so some of the background assumptions or ideas from Brewer's naive realist theory in order to get that point or those points on the table. <clears throat> okay. So there's various features I want to highlight. So one is that, um, on Brewer's view, physical objects themselves are constitutive of character. Um, but he also holds that some of the ways those objects are, or properties they have, are themselves character-shaping. And what that means, he doesn't put it like that, this is my turn, but what that means, though, is that they're constitutively relevant to how the physical object perceived, or that one is acquainted with, shapes the character. Um, and what that means is that they're part of what makes it the case that the physical object constitutes the specific modification of consciousness it constitutes. Um, so the idea here is that you can be acquainted with a, a green apple, and the fact that it's a green apple will make a difference to how the apple shapes consciousness, to how the apple constitutes a specific modification of consciousness. That's Brewer's term. The fact that it's green is relevant as opposed to red, and some of its features are, are not relevant in this way. So its precise weight, when it comes to seeing the apple, is not constitutively relevant to how the apple is shaping the conscious character of the experience. So the idea is that you've got these physical objects that you're acquainted with, and they shape the character of experience. Experience is, as it is, partly, at least partly because of the objects, but also the ways those objects are is relevant to how they shape the character. Okay, so that's one, that's a couple of points from Brewer's view. Next is some ideas about looks, the looks of objects. So Brewer conceives of looks as among the ways objects are. So objects have ways of looking that, you know, just as an object is red, it has a red way of looking. That's a feature of the object. Okay. And they are among the character-shaping ways objects are. And Brewer spells out looks in this way, um, roughly. So when a, an object looks some way F, it's in virtue of, or that bottoms out in, its visually relevant similarities to a paradigm F. Okay, I'll, I'll give an example of this shortly. But the thing I want to highlight for now is that these looks of objects are not, uh, as it were, non-relational features of objects. They're features objects have in relation to the conditions of perception, to the conditions that make up this third relatum. And that's what I mean by saying that the third relatum factors play a determinative role. The, the, that is, how the lighting conditions are, say, is relevant to determining which looks objects have. Okay. Um, and finally, on Brewer's view, such factors play a selective role. 
So we can illustrate the determinative and selective role with this example. This is one of Brewer's examples. So suppose you look at a white piece of chalk in peculiar lighting so that the white piece of chalk looks pink to you. Okay. Now, relative to the lighting conditions, this piece of chalk actually has a certain property that it wouldn't have necessarily in other lighting conditions. So that property it has is a sort of relational property, and it's a pink look. So on Brewer's view, that means that in those lighting conditions, the object is visually similar to a pink piece of chalk, and so it looks pink. So in other words, because of those lighting conditions, the object is a certain way. It has a pink look. So the lighting conditions are partly determinative or determine the way the object is in terms of its looks. And then the second aspect of this is a given that the chalk is perceived in those lighting conditions, it's perceived under the, pink uh, the red or pink illumination, um, that pink look of it is selected as character shaping. So it becomes salient as the aspect of the object that um, makes a difference to how the object shapes the character, as opposed to other features it has. So there's a determinative element and a selective element to the third relatum factors on Brewer's view. <coughs> okay, so now I've set that out. Perhaps not so clear, but we'll go with it. <laughs> Now I've tried to set that out. I'll, I'll try to explain how um, we can perhaps understand Brewer's response to the challenge cases as one which exploits the third relatum factors in that determining and selecting role, as opposed to the previous, previously mentioned character shaping role. <coughs> okay. So a few points to try to spell that out then. So let's, let's look at the pairs again, the, um, the challenge cases. The first thing to note is that none of them differ in which physical object they involve. Each pair is an experience of one and the same coin. But that doesn't mean that the differences, the character differences within the pairs cannot be located or, you know, put on the side of the object. So it doesn't mean that we can't explain that character difference entirely on the object side of the relation of uh, perception. It just means we can't explain that in terms of which physical object is involved because there's no difference in which physical object is involved. But there's a difference in how the physical object is, arguably, across those cases. Um, so that is, we could understand the differences uh, across the cases in terms of the different properties of the object. Now that seems fairly straightforward in the first case. No, sorry. In case three, um, viewing a newly minted coin and then the same coin tarnished years later, the coin when it's newly minted versus when it's tarnished years later will be and look very different, right? So it looks newly minted and has all of the shiny features and then it looks tarnished and so on um, and has various qualities associated with looking tarnished. 
So although the coin is the same, there's still a difference in the object and the qualities of the object across those two cases, which could perhaps be what explains the different characters in those experiences. <clears throat> um, and we can run a similar strategy, but slightly more complicated for the other cases, if we understand third order item factors as playing this determining and selecting role. So I'll, I'll run that through with case one, but I think you can just say similar things about the other cases, which I think I did say, spell out a little bit more in the written version of the paper. <clears throat> okay, so case one, in each experience a single coin is seen, yet it looks one way in one experience, E1, when it's seen from head on, and it looks a different way in another experience, E2, when it's seen from wide angle. Um, but the coin, you might say, or Brewer might say, this might be his point, differs across these two conditions. Because it has one look in one case and a different look in another case. Remember, the looks are features of objects. Um, okay, So it looks different to the subject in the two cases, sure, but it, that means for him it has different objective looks in the two cases. So the coin differs across the two cases. And then it varies in look, in look because the third relatum factors play a determinative role. So the third relatum factors are different across the two cases. The spatial point of view differs across the two cases, and that determines a different look across the two cases. So it has what you might call a head-on look um, in one case and a wide-angle look in another. Because it's perceived from head-on in one case, the head-on look is selected. Because it's perceived from a wide-angle in another case, the wide-angle look is selected. So um, we can explain how the characters of these experiences differ in terms of a difference in the object, the different looks the object has across the two cases, and that's accounted for by the difference in the third relatum factors, which determines and then selects the different looks. Okay, so that's the idea. So if, and he doesn't say, but if Brewer wants to understand third relatum factors in this determining and selecting way, then we have a strategy, uh, a three-place naive realist strategy, a third relatum strategy for responding to all of these challenge cases that doesn't have us saying that third relatum factors are character shaping. They just determine and select. And what shapes characters? Just those objects and the features they have. And that's just in line with diaphaneity then. So the idea is that third relatum factors make a difference to which looks there are and which are selected. When it comes to what constitutes character, it's just about the objects of experience, as diaphaneity says. <clears throat> okay, so the take-home points from this aspect of the discussion are, are these then, I think, that... Assigning third relatum factors a role in explaining conscious character does not in itself entail that strong or weak diaphaneity fails, as it might at first seem. Um, and that's because one way to spell out that explanatory role is as a determining and selecting role, and if that's all that's happening with these third relatum factors, that's perfectly consistent with diaphaneity, perfectly consistent with character of experience being fully reducible to facts about the objects and the ways they are or look. <clears throat> um, in the paper, I think I sort of suggest that this 
might be probably as brewers for you. And I've got a few footnotes on that. But even if you disagree with me about how to interpret brewer, and that's fine, of course, um, I think it's still relevant because it, we now know, I think, what a plausible enough, strongly diaphanous <coughs> version of naive realism would look like. So it would be to maintain strong diaphaneity and to respond to some of the worries about strong diaphaneity with this third relatum story with determining and selecting rather than character shaping. Um, so it looks like it's a view worth taking seriously uh, that can deal with, or at least begin to deal with, maybe a lot more detail is needed, some of the things that might make us worry about diaphaneity, namely challenge cases. Right. <clears throat> Okay, so really, I suppose the point is that the, the commentators who interpret naive realism as involving strong diaphaneity, they don't have to be seen as you know, completely out of touch with how some naive realist view might be developed, because we've just developed one that does involve strong diaphaneity. But nonetheless, I now want to argue that strong diaphaneity is false, uh, as is weak diaphaneity. And so naive realism should not explain or develop the character component of their view. Naive realists shouldn't explain or develop that with reference to these diaphaneity claims. <clears throat> so I'm on to three now on the handout against diaphaneity. All right, so the way this part of the discussion goes is as follows. Firstly, I'll be drawing on some, some material from Matt Soterio's book, The Mind's Construction. And that will, I think, enable us to see that strong diaphaneity is false. Um, but then I will develop some of those ideas to push against weak diaphaneity too. As far as I remember, I don't think... Matt goes against weak diaphaneity in the book. So hopefully this is something new, but you can tell me <laughs> if you think that's wrong. Okay, so that's, that's the plan. <clears throat> so uh, the focus of the, the bit of Matt's discussion that I want to draw on is uh, the, some of the spatial aspects of the conscious character of ordinary visual experiences. Okay. So uh, the experience, the example I want to work with is this very boring example where you look at an apple in a fruit bowl on the table. <laughs> Sorry, my inner life is very dull. Um, <laughs> genuinely. Um, so you look at an apple in a fruit bowl on the table and this, the experience here has in an ordinary case of conscious visual experience, we ha it has a rich spatial structure. And following Matt, we can distinguish two elements to that spatial structure, or to the aspects of the conscious character there. One I, um, I call a worldly aspect, the other I call a limitation aspect. Okay, so to, to get the worldly aspect on the table then, so my experience involves 
um, a large cone of space which I'm perceptually aware of, in which I see the apple as located, and as spatially related to other things, including subregions of the cone of space I'm aware of. And it seems like just that bit of conscious character, you can specify um, in terms of what I perceive in the world, in terms of the object, the spatial relations, and the space it's in. <clears throat> Spatially organized features of the world that's just out there. So that's why I'm calling it the worldly aspect. Um, and then this is the thing I'm taking from Soterio, which is this limitation aspect. So if I reflect further upon the spatial aspects of the conscious character of such experiences, uh, it's, they seem to involve limitations. So in the in this experience I'm focusing on, I have a sense that I can see only what falls within a space of such and such a size and shape. It's not unlimited. It's restricted. Um, and this restricted space is a sub-region of a larger space, which I could see more of if only I were to alter my point of view. And that's kind of apparent to me when I reflect upon the character of my experience, that it's limited in such a way and that it's limited in such a way. Okay. So now one question you might have is, do we really have two things here, this worldly aspect and this limitation aspect? Maybe this limitation aspect really can just be purely understood in terms of what's presented to you from the world, objects, spatial structure, space, uh, which would be a, a thought very much in line with strong diaphaneity. Maybe this aspect of character is purely explicable just in terms of what you're getting when you perceive. <clears throat> and I think as Matt spells out and Louise Richardson also spells out, that doesn't seem plausible. So here are some, some of their thoughts on that, right? So the question is, can't we account for this limitation aspect simply in terms of this presentation of spatially organized aspects of the world and regions of space. Um, I take Soteria's answer to be no, um, and he says we shouldn't think of the boundaries of the spatial sensory field of vision as boundaries of something one is sensing, like the frame of a painting. We should think of its boundaries in terms of one's sensory limitations, one's own sensory limitations. Okay. So I see the bowl with the apple in on the table in a certain part of the room. This spatially structured scene doesn't set the limitation that my experience has, the fact that it's limited to such and such a region of space. Okay. And the physical space I see doesn't set it either. Um, for regardless of my being presented with this scene or that space, the way in which my experience is limited would stay the same. If I move my head, the limitations, as it were, go with me, even though the scene and the space is changed. <clears throat> my awareness would still be manifestly limited or spatially structured in the same way, confined to a region of such and such a size and extent. So instead, and this is now Richardson, envision having this feature, this limitation aspect, it seems to me as if I am sensorially, uh, I'm limited sensorially. In other words, if you reflect upon the character of these experiences, they seem limited, the conscious character presents them as limited, and the limitations don't seem to come from anything one is presented with, but seem to come from uh, one's, one's own limitations. 
develop this further um, as Soterio notes changes in the boundaries of this spatial sensory field, for instance, when you close one eye, do not seem to you to amount to changes in the boundaries of something that you're visually aware of, something that you are visually aware of as changing size and shape. Again, it seems as if the, the change in experience there is coming from the change in your sensory limitations. When you close your eye, that's a change in your own sensory limitations. It doesn't seem to be a change out there that you're perceiving. <clears throat> so I think the lesson from this then, from this reflection on conscious character of ordinary vision, is that the, the limitation aspect of the character of an ordinary visual experience is constituted by something other than any presented entity. It's manifestly a matter of the subject's sensory limitations. And that means that strong diaphaneity fails, because we've now found an aspect of conscious character that's not wholly explicable, not re wholly reducible to or constituted by any presented objects of experience. In the written version of the paper, I sort of explain that in terms of the failure of both the strong difference claim and the strong sameness claim. I won't go through that. I can do in the Q&A if that would help. Um, but the, the sort of message is that you've got this limitation aspect of conscious character. It's an aspect of what it's like for the subject to experience as they do that just doesn't derive entirely from the objects of experience. <clears throat> okay, so that is, I think, consistent with weak diaphaneity still being true. Um, so take the case when I uh, look at the apple with both eyes open and then close one eye. My experiences differ, and the differences are not entirely constituted by any difference in objects. It comes from within. But there is a difference in objects. So that conforms with this weak difference claim, because I now see when my one eye is closed less of the world out there. So there is a difference in what I'm presented with. So the weak difference claim is not challenged by such cases. So the weak difference claim says necessarily if any two experiences have different conscious characters, then they have different objects or differences in their objects. And that's still um, that, that's confirmed in the uh, limitation case where you close one eye. So although we may challenge strong diaphaneity, weak diaphaneity is still in play here. <clears throat> so now in the final part of the talk, before I conclude, I'll give my argument against weak diaphaneity, which builds upon some of this stuff from Soterio. So to get this argument into on the table, I want to consider a condition known as balance syndrome, which is a severe uh, disorder of spatial perception, of visual spatial perception. The disorder is to do with the spatial dimensions to visual spatial perception. <clears throat> and the condition is usually defined in terms of three main deficits. One is simultanagnosia, which is the inability to see more than one object at a time, um, to see more than one object simultaneously. Uh, and then the other conditions are optic ataxia, 
which is um, difficulty with coordinating one's uh, arm movements to one's visual perception, and then optic apraxia, which is a difficulty with fixating one's eyes on the objects of perception. But it's really simultanagnosia that's the main factor that will play into this discussion. I can, I can try and say more about balance syndrome in the Q&A if, if necessary. Um, that's something I've written about, but now that I've said that, I, do, I, haven't really, I don't really remember any of the details. So um, <laughs> you can embarrass me by asking me questions about that. Okay, but anyway, let's. So, so here's a description from Robertson, um, and she describes the condition in one individual RM as follows single objects popped in and out of view in RM's everyday life. An object continued to be perceptually present for a while and then was replaced by another object or part of an object without warning. So it's not like RM could just take in a view and see multiple things at a time. It's like there's one object and then another pops into view and then another, but not multiple objects simultaneously. And that's a simultanagnosia aspect of the condition. Um, so it looks like the individual with balance syndrome cannot see multiple objects at a time, as in a large region of space and as arranged in spatial order, unlike ordinary visual experience. Um, and another feature of the condition that's highlighted with some of the scientists um, is what I'm putting it in terms of the, the single object they see at a time dominates their visual experience and its spatial structure. Um, <clears throat> So here's a couple of quotations. One from, I forgot to put the authors on, on this, apologies for that. One from, the first is from Monica Harvey and David Milner, and the second one is from Lynn Robertson and colleagues. So the first one then from Harvey and Milner. So the patient's constricted field of visual attention was evidently bounded not in retinotopic coordinates, but rather by the contours of the object to which he was attending, whatever its size. So it's not just that they can see most one object at a time, but whichever object they see sets the um, spatial structure of the experience. Similarly, Robertson and colleagues, subjectively experienced space seems to collapse down to the space within the currently attended object. The size of this space varies with the size of the object that defines it. So now, here is my admittedly speculative um, um, understanding of what experiences of individuals with balance syndrome would be like. <clears throat> so given these descriptions, presumably, <clears throat> in looking at the apple, the individual with balance syndrome doesn't have a sense of, this, of the space they see as a sub-region of a larger space as delimited by their sensory limitations, such that there's more for them to see if they were to alter their point of view, the spatial structure of their experience comes instead from the apple that they experience. Imagine they're looking at an apple. And presumably, it's not just that the spatial boundaries of their experience happen to coincide with those of the apple. Uh, the boundaries are what they are because the perceived apple's boundaries are what they are. The apple, as we're saying, dominates the experience and its spatial structure. 
So if you pulled away the apple and put a banana in front of the individual with balance syndrome, it's not that the existing boundaries set by the apple would stay fixed and now there'd be a banana within those boundaries. Um, it's rather the boundaries would switch to those of the banana. Um, and though this is speculative, I think it's reasonable to suppose that the boundaries of their experience would seem to them to change accordingly. <clears throat> so initially then, the point is that the way the individual with balance syndrome experiences an apple, given some of the descriptions from the scientists about the condition, seems very different in its spatial structure, especially to do with this limitation side of things, to the way someone without balance syndrome with uh, ordinary vision would experience the apple. Um, so it might be tempting to just say, ah, so the weak difference claim fails then because you've got the balance syndrome experience and the ordinary experience and they don't differ in their objects, yet they differ in their characters. <clears throat> but I think that's, that's a bit too quick because... Um, well, when I, when I look at the apple in the fruit bowl on the table, I get so much more in my field of view than the individual with balance syndrome. I get the apple and the bowl and everything surrounding it. The individual with balance syndrome gets a single object. So there is a difference in what's presented. Um, so we still don't yet have um, a counterexample to the weak difference claim. So now this is uh, where I want to develop the idea a bit then, is to, to transform things into a thought experiment <clears throat> so as we can get a challenge to this weak difference claim too. And so the thought experiment <coughs> uh, involves this thing I'm calling a limiting device. Now, for all I know, there may actually be such a, a device that's out there. So if anyone knows more than me, tell me, please. Um, okay, so, so at the bottom of page four on the handout here, um, I've put it in a box so that it looks more like a handout than that. I've just copied and pasted it from the paper. Okay, so we consider a limiting device which fits across the eyes. It's a device which, like the closing of an eye, can modify the spatial boundaries of one's visual experience. And it's connected to an app whereby the subject can finally control the way in which the spatial boundaries of their experience are narrowed or limited. One might use the device to make exactly the same change in limitations that one would make by simply closing an eye. Um, but various other configurations are possible too. <clears throat> so suppose that I'm looking at an apple and the device is off. So this is me now. We're not talking about an individual with balance syndrome. I see a whole spatially structured scene, as before, the apple being one among other objects that I see. But then I turn the device on and start fiddling with it. There are manifest gradual changes in the limitations of my experience. At one point, it's as if I have one eye closed. And then eventually, it happens to narrow the spatial boundaries of my experience so as to coincide with just those, so those of just the apple. And so I see nothing but the apple and some of its features when I've been fiddling with the device in this manner. <clears throat> and it's that experience there, the, what I'm calling the crucial stage, that I want to focus on. <clears throat> so the point I want to make is that my experience here in the crucial stage does not differ in its objects from the experience of the apple had by the individual with balance syndrome. And, and the, the thought experiment is designed to achieve that claim. That is, the experiences don't differ in their objects. But I think still, 
in the limitation aspects of the experience, the characters will be different. And if that's right, then the weak difference claim, even the weak difference claim, fails. <coughs> and so all that remains is for me to just briefly explain that point then, this difference in character point. <clears throat> so compare my experience of the apple in the crucial stage and that of the individual with balance syndrome. The experiences don't differ in their objects, but they do differ in character. The limitation aspect of the character of the experience with the individual with balance syndrome is as I described before. But the limitation aspect of the character of my experience in the crucial, crucial stage is very different. And there are two points of difference that I would like to highlight. So even though in the crucial stage, the spatial boundaries of my experience happen to be narrowed to the apple I see, they coincide with it, I still have a sense of the space I see as a sub-region of a larger space and as delimited by my own sensory limitations, modified by the limiting device, but um, not by... It's, it's not that I sense these limitations as coming from the apple. <clears throat> and so part of that comes from the fact that before the crucial stage, I was using the device to modify the limitations. And so if I reflected inwardly, I would have a sense of this limitation aspect of the character of the experience as coming from me and aug augmented by the device, not as coming from what's out there. So that's one point of difference um, in how the spatial aspect of my experience is. And then the second is that the spatial boundaries of my visual experience uh, are not dominated by the apple. They coincide with it, but they're not dominated by it. Um, and we can bring this out um, by highlighting that um, so it doesn't have the boundaries it has because of the boundaries of the apple, unlike in the balance syndrome case. So even in the crucial stage, if you pulled away the apple and put a banana in front of me, the existing boundaries wouldn't swap over, they would stay fixed, determined by the limited device. It'd still be, as it were, apple-shaped boundaries. Um, whereas with the balance syndrome case, you switch in a banana, and the boundaries change accordingly. As Robertson says of RM, objects popped in and out of view, and the space shrank to whichever object was in view. But that's not the case for the scenario I've described with me in the crucial stage. So... The second point of difference, then, is that the spatial boundaries of my experience come and seem to come not from any entity I perceive, but rather from my own sensory limitations, albeit modified by the limiting device. So I think there are these two points of difference between my experience in the crucial stage and the individual with balance syndrome, even though those experiences don't differ in objects. And that's why I think the weak difference claim fails. OK, so... Um, do I have a couple of minutes to just conclude? Yeah, OK. Thanks. OK, so conclusions then. So I've tried to argue that the diaphaneity claims are false. Um, we drew on Soteria to see that strong diaphaneity is false, and then I've tried to you know, add to that to get weak diaphaneity is false too. And I focus mainly on these difference claims. <clears throat> so one result of that is that any version of naive realism such as the three-place version I outlined before, which uh, develops the character component with diaphaneity, is false too. But that doesn't mean that naive realism is false, because um, I don't think you need to develop naive realism with the 
uh, with diaphaneity. Um, so I think uh, the core note of realist idea is that the character of experience is um, the objects, the mind-independent objects of experience are constitutive of character. But it's consistent with that that other things are constitutive of character, or it's not fully constitutive of character. There's lots of uh, room for manoeuvre there. So I don't think naive realism falls as a result of diaphaneity falling. Um, so the final query then is, if that's right, then there should be non-diaphanous aspect of conscious character, aspects of conscious character. And by that I mean aspects of conscious character where there is more to them than what simply derives from the objects of experience, or where there's nothing to them than, uh, about them that derives from the objects of experience. There should be non-diaphanous aspects of character. And one might think, okay, if a naive realist has to admit that, what can they say about those aspects of character? Maybe they're going to have to, the naive realist will have to say, okay, over to a rival theory of experience to give us an account of them, or perhaps they'll just have to be quiet about them, embarrassingly quiet about them. And I think um, neither of those options are forced upon the naive realist. They don't have to hand over to another theory of experience, and they don't have to be quiet, because there are a few things that they could say by way of accounting for explaining non-diaphanous aspects of character within a naive realist framework. And I don't have much substantive to say here about these options, but I'll just mention them. So one is, and, and they're already in the literature, perhaps apart from this third relatum thing I'm about to say. So one is to say some of the non-diaphanous aspects of character are going to be explained by opinion to facts about the subject of experience and how the subject is. That's one idea that Heather Logue mentions without properly spelling out. Another idea is that the aspects of character come from the way the perceptual relation itself is. And that's something that Logue mentions that Stereo develops and that I'm trying to develop, to develop with the, in joint work with Ian Phillips. And then finally, one idea is the idea I mentioned earlier and sort of just moved on from, which is to say we've got third relatum factors in a character-shaping rather than a merely determining and selecting role. Um, so those, those are the different options, and there may be others that naive realists can appeal to. So to conclude then, <coughs> uh, naive realists should reject diaphaneity. That's not what they should go in for in developing the character component of their view. Uh, that leaves them with non-diaphanous aspects of character. There's already various options available to them for explaining such aspects of character. Okay, thanks very much.